Hi, I'm Meredith. And I'm Kristen. We'd like to welcome you to the writer's story. And it is May, and I am picking strawberries from my yard, which is <gasps> just delightful. Strawberries now, when are... you say yard, are, you, are these wild strawberries or nope. are these strawberries? Nope. They are strawberries that I grow. I had them, I had a patch and then, you know, you're going to say, woe is me. My fig tree was, got too big and shaded that patch. <laughs> yeah, that's hard for me to find pity for Yeah, you, yeah. So I had to move it big. to the backyard. And <laughs> I moved it last year and it was the first year. And of course you don't get anything the first year. You move yeah. strawberries, they're very sensitive. <laughs> and um, But this year we are picking them almost not quite ripe just because we're trying to race ahead of the birds. Ah, uh, yes. Who would like to just take one little peck of every strawberry if they could. <laughs> and then we're very, we're very nervous about our neighbor's groundhog tenant and coming over and gorging himself. So we're trying to maximize and the riper the strawberry the sweeter it smells well that is exciting well i can't have um, also some garden news our asparagus seems to have really taken off which is fun so that's another one as i understand it you're not supposed to harvest for like the first couple years i I did plant it now i think a couple years ago and you have to let it get all tall and feathery and then die back So all of its energy goes back into the whatever's roots, rhizomes. And then um, I think next year will be a bumper crop if I can keep it through because uh, it's tall and feathery now. I seem to remember, too, my parents would plant it very far away from everything in the garden. It had to have its own space. I guess maybe it has a tendency to catch diseases from other things. I have give diseases. I have no idea, but I remember the asparagus was down near our river. Oh, well, this asparagus may be subject to all all those viral fungal irritants, but so far so good. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I know. Hopefully, optimistic. Fingers crossed. Yes, definitely lots of gardening going on, lots of weeds. Um, and, and some writing. <laughs> Tell me about your writing. Well, I spent several weeks, um, really just buckling down and saying, I'm going to write every day. I'm going to fix this thriller. I'm going to do this thing. And it was working okay. And I guess I got another, I don't know, 5,000 words or whatever, but I just wasn't feeling it. And then I was listening to something and it was talking about writing what really sparks with you and I realized I really wanted to go back to my bank robbery book which I had set aside knowing it was in the wrong time period and so I'm setting it in the 70s I've added another character and I'm just off to the races and I'm really enjoying it so I figure I'm writing the right thing well I'm so happy to hear it and I'm happy to hear that you're setting it in the 70s I love the 70s. I'm so old. I know the 70s. As a matter of fact, I'm drinking Red Zinger tea right now, blended by celestial seasonings, and I and it takes me back to the 70s. To the 70s. When I know enough about the 70s days. that I don't feel quite such a loser when I try to write about it. I'm really bad at writing historical fiction and um, partially laziness. I don't like to research, but partially I just feel like a fraud. I just feel like there's nothing I can do that will be accurate, and then I get in my own head, and I don't know. Well, it's good to feel, it's good to recognize what you feel excited and good inhabiting as a writer for your story, and so I'm tickled that you are feeling better about this particular decade. (laughs) And I, I loved, so I had the great opportunity of reading an early draft of this. And I just think it has so much exciting possibility. So I'm really happy that you've gone back to it. And um, yeah, you mentioned, and is it related, you mentioned uh, 
hearing Neil Gaiman talk about, is that how you pronounce it, Gaiman or Gaiman? Oh, I'm really the wrong person to ask. Okay, anyway, we both think he's fantastic, I know. Right, and I, um, um, so yeah, the two things that keep me sane every day is I, is I write and I walk. And when I walk, I started listening to podcasts, and I was listening to Elizabeth Gilbert's podcast, and she had Neil Gaiman on as an expert. And something he said really resonated with me, and I shared it with you earlier, and, and I'll share it with our listeners. And, and that was, he said, there are two kinds of writers. I always love when things start with two kinds of anything. <laughs> there are two kinds of writers. There are dolphins, and there are otters. And dolphins, um, inherently, uh, they'll, they, they perform in shows, in in um you know sea world and stuff and the reason is because they're trainable and so you can get a dolphin to do a trick and then you give them a fish and so the next time they know they do that trick and they get the fish and the dolphin thinks of course it's trained the trainer by saying i do this thing and they always give me a fish and the trainer thinks they've trained the dolphin and those writers are the writers that can write you know 25 of the same um series in a mystery and they were talking how much they admired these people because they do they can write they can go write something and it's not the same as the last thing but it's you know it's what their audience wants but Neil and Elizabeth both uh, said that they are otters and otters are not in SeaWorld shows not because they are not cute because <laughs> they are cute they're very cute and fuzzy and people will watch videos of them because they never do the same thing twice and they are content to go off and eat a sea urchin off their belly. <laughs> and those writers are writers that actually can't write the same book again and again. They are just unable to do that. And so they write other things and marketing departments rip out their hair in despair because what they really want is for Elizabeth Gilbert to write, eat more, pray more, love more. <laughs> and she said instead she wrote a historic novel that was 800 words as her next book and that was that so that was really encouraging to hear because I think um I hear a lot about people saying I have a good friend who says oh you have to pick your genre and then you have to stick in it and you have to write at least four books in the genre before you can switch to another genre and I start you know getting hives I start getting hives I start <laughs> hyperventilating and thinking oh my god I'm such a failure so it was really nice to hear that other people have similar problems people who are incredibly successful um but yeah it was and Elizabeth Cooper was really really sweet about it because she said you know I'd love to write something that publishes that many copies and makes that much money but that's not who I am yeah yeah, well, it's we've. I think we've talked before about how um, long and lonely the process of writing is, and so you really have to be okay in the days and the months and the years that it takes to write a thing, um, because the publishing of it, if that even were to happen, is to happen, is a very um, just a tiny fraction of the amount of time that you might spend on a project so you gotta love it and so I'm glad that you're doing that but it is a risk um, it's easier to pigeonhole people and you know we talk these days about branding and it's hard to get branded when you <laughs> wander in and out of genres but um, but what the heck life is short do yeah do you what love. you do what you and, need to do I think I mean yeah. I think you could probably force yourself you know, to write Bible Babble 2 and 3 and 4. Yeah. But it probably wouldn't be as good as the first one. And so your attempt to satisfy those fans of the first book would probably fall short because it would not be satisfying to you. And I think that's super important to remember that you have to sort of be satisfied by what you're doing, I think, to make that's other exactly people right. happy. That's exactly right. But I'm here to say... Be prepared to be surprised by what you thought you weren't going to write any more of and writing more of it. <laughs> I say from personal experience, I told myself after this latest 
Bible book came out that I wasn't going to write any more Bible books. And I said that out loud. I said that with passion and real genuine determination. And then um, my wonderful editor at Oxford reached out to say, hey, we'd really like a, a, a book based on basically some of what I was doing at the conclusion of, the, of this most recent book. And I, um, when I talked with him on the phone, I said, first, I have to tell you right up front that I'm determined not to say yes to this. <laughs> And the then by the end, get, he said, yes. The best you'll get from me is that I'll think about it. And he laughed. And and I did tell him at the end, I'm having a hard time not saying yes right now, but I'm going to think about this. And the truth is, Meredith, I'm here to say, I'm actually excited about this next Bible book. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying it. But there it is. I think I am going to if they accept it of course you write a proposal and it still has to go yes. through their yes. board and all of that but well, um, that, there's no judgment because i think you take each of these ideas and you make them <clears throat> unique and interesting to you well thank you yeah so th in this case i am excited because i realized some things after this most recent book came out about that book that i didn't put into it that are, um, I'm speaking in such abstract generalized terms, this may not be meaningful at all, but I, I learned some things about the ways that I am thinking about the Bible and the ways that people read the Bible that I think can be really um, relevant for people today, for the 21st century. And I did say to Theo, the editor, I said, I, the only way I'm gonna write this book and the only way I can imagine this book is if it addresses directly and concretely the ways that we are in our world today and the, the issues that we face. And, and I am excited about this because it is not so much that there are texts of the Bible that address these things of the urgent issues of our day, but it has to do with the, our method of using it and approaching it. And that's what is kind of exciting to me. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I peck away at the fiction, which is fun too. But yeah, a yeah. little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there, yeah. lots yeah. of time outside. Yes. Yes. It's hard to not be outside. Well, um, I am super excited about our guest today. Me too. Speaking of writing out of your passion and not for huge commercial. <laughs> yes. Anyone, yes. She's a poet. Any poet, bless their hearts, are writing out of their hearts. Right. So um, Rebecca Morgan Frank, she goes by Morgan um, now. Um, I can read her bio, but of course the most important thing for me is that I went to high school with her. Oh, <laughs> well, she doesn't put on her little tiny bio. Yeah, she doesn't say I went to high school with Meredith Cole, but um, <laughs> we went to high school together and she was a very serious ballet dancer. Really? Yes. In high school. Um, so she would leave school a lot to do her classes. And wow. we were recently, it was our high school's 50th anniversary and we were invited to be writers on a panel to represent our high school and so I got to see her after I won't say how many years but quite a few and um and I was just enchanted and I had read her poetry um when it had been in the New Yorker um uh, so you know I got to get her book and then she was gracious enough to say she'd come on um she is the author of three previous titles including two published by Carnegie Mellon University Press and Little Murders Everywhere, a finalist for the Kate Tufts Discovery Award. Her poems have appeared in the New Yorker, American Poetry Review, and the Kenyan Review, and she lives in Chicago. And her book is called Oh, You Robot Saints. <laughs> yeah, such a great title. And I'm dying to ask her a little bit about how you write a book of poetry and you know, how is that different than writing a poem? I'm, I'm just really interested to find out a lot about her and her methods. Um, and she also, as we, we mentioned uh, before, um, uses music yes. and, and works with yeah. composers. And so I'm, I'm really excited to ask a little bit more about that as well. So well, yes. let's go call her up. Hi, Morgan. 
Thanks for joining us tonight. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I um, I did a little editing of your bio because I really felt like the first thing that you should mention was that we went to high school together. <laughs> Meredith said you don't include it in your bio. And I just thought... It's because you don't want to name drop, right? That's right, that's right. But um, but I was re- it was really fun to be on a panel with you the other day, and I just realized that I had so many more questions for you and wanted to hear more from you and so and then was super excited because you're of your recent book um so i just wanted to start off with our question what was your journey like to becoming a writer and i know you did and i mentioned you had been very very serious dancer before but tell us a little bit about your journey yeah my journey is kind of a long one or maybe a little bit of both late bloomer and I was doing it all the time. Um, it's, so um, I, I was a dancer in high school, but I was also an avid reader and um, I wrote little stories um, all the time. Uh, but, you know, I was very just focused on on becoming a dancer, I thought. And and then um, I, I, I was an English major in college and this sounds so funny, but the reason I didn't take a creative writing class is it was by lottery, like registration lottery, and the classes were always full by the time I I got to register. Um, so, you know, I, I wrote on my own. I was writing poems, and especially as I started to be in some classes, like a Native American literature class where we were given the poems of Joy Harjo, and I started to finally uh, come across poems that were written by women. <laughs> Imagine that. I had grown up with an incredible um, canonical library in my house, I should say. Um, so, so I also was under the assumption that you had to go out someone had said at some point you have to go out and experience life before you're a writer which is such an infuriating thing in retrospect as i teach young writers um but i felt like i i had to go off and do something and i also remembered uh, a certain famous writer coming to our high school and saying only two percent of writers can make their living off writing alone. And I, I just didn't even know that writers could do other things and still be writers. I didn't really understand. Um, so this is kind of the longer story. And then uh, when I was in my 20s, I tr- tried taking a few kind of community writing classes. Um, and uh, I stumbled into um, one in uh Boulder, Colorado, that kind of turned my life around. It was a woman um, who uh, who had classes in their house, and um, all of a sudden, I was in a circle of poets, and it was really exciting. And from there, I found out about MFA programs, um, and so um, I went on. I was 31 when I went to do my MFA in creative writing at Emerson College, and that's really was the kind of official beginning. So I would say that long story of I was always just reading, probably like a book a day. I mean, I always read. We, I grew up without a TV. I was always reading. I was always writing, but um, but it wasn't until much later that I kind of found my way into the writing world and graduate school sort of opened that up and uh, started a trajectory where everything about my life pretty much became about um, the writing life and, uh, and literary community. And how about the poetry? How did you come to poetry specifically? You know, it's a great question. When I, uh, it, it, the one time I've ever been stumped at a job interview, an academic job interview, when they asked that, and we're like, I can't believe I don't have an answer to this. I was ready for all these complicated things. But I would say, you know, I read um, poetry as a child, and I had my dad was, I mean, this sounds like, kind of crazy, but he and his friend would sit in the living room and read Milton out loud. So I had these sort of really? rhythms of, of, of poetry in my head, but I always, I think I always was writing stories too. And I think um, when I, when I landed in that one poetry workshop, it just, I had this amazing teacher and I, um, I just sort of kind of found that in the direction and I and I do write um stories and and nonfiction too but it's just sort of the back burner work where I think the music to me I think um poetry 
maybe it has something in it of dance and that there is some kind of internal music to it, right? The, the, the music is, I think, really what draws me to it. Um, it's not the only thing, but it's, it's the thing that's so distinctive to it. Oh, that's really so good. I, I was also just going to say, I, um, I, I met a couple novelists and I can almost always tell if they were poets <laughs> at some point. It, because reading them, I think it is, I think there's a rhythm and the sounds of the words and that sort of thing. It's very, they really relish that. Yeah, I'm always trying to get, you know, whether I'm teaching undergraduate or graduate students to to cross train, you know, and I love it. I always loved it when um, fiction writers would take my uh, poetry classes or poetics form classes. And they you know, always talked about how it really helped them, you know, going into their work to just be, um, yeah, to be thinking of those rhythms and not that there aren't many, not that prose writers don't think about that, but it just sort of gives you a different um, lens coming into uh, the sentence. That's yeah, funny. for sure. Well, on that topic, would you be willing to read a little bit of your poetry for our listeners so that we can hear some of that rhythm and the, just the sound of it? Sure, sure. Um, to look at I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll read um, a poem from the new book, uh, Oh, You Robot Saints. Um, and this is, I, I got, for this book, I've got really interested in early robots or automata. And there was this 16th century mechanical monk who um, uh, I just became fascinated with. And so this poem is called Monk Automaton, circa 1560. One. Looking at you now is like seeing a god or a king naked and starving in a field. Stripped of your damask robe and wooden limbs, you've been skinned to the iron spine that stims your clockwork to your cracked face. This is when you are most mortal. You could hold him in both hands, a key turn spiriting a clockwork miracle, each supplicant kneeling to its absence of breath, blessed by his cams and levers, the secrets beneath his robes, mia culpa, mia culpa, mia culpa. His poplar jaw drops prayers, shuts in a wooden cross kiss as his right hand beats the absence of a heart. He wears the face of Saint Didicus, the tripod wheels of Hephaestus, son of the gods, father of the future, the monk almost floats. Robots can do almost anything you please. They're up on sexual favors, cordless vacuuming, and martyring themselves by bomb. Less effective at deep tissue massage, excellent at listening to senior citizens, working on parking your car. What the future brings is nothing we haven't seen in this quest to be little gods and make what will do our bidding. The medieval monk who doled out benedictions arose from a ruler's dream and was then fathered by a clockmaker. The real monk now sits alone in the back room, smokes a cigar, enjoys a glass of whiskey. He's outsourced the job. The real monk is on the dole. The real monk is waiting in the parking lot for alphas of day labor. The real monk is unloading boxes at Costco. The real monk sits in the factory, building himself by hand. Mm. Thank you, Morgan. Wow. Poem. There's so much about it that um, is evocative and, um, and really it's very poignant, also funny. One of the things that strikes me on hearing you read it, I had a chance to read it on the page before we um, got to got to meet here, but to hear you read it, I am struck by um, the usage of all the the words for the things that are parts of our human body, and words for the things that are not. <laughs> and, and one of the I I just love the final two words by hand. Mm -hmm. um, making himself by hand. I, I'm sorry, I don't have exactly, oh, I shouldn't even, this is such a terrible thing to do to poetry is try to um, unpack it. But anyway, I love, I just love that, the two syllables, the by hand part. Um, oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, and uh, this the idea, just the idea, I think that we, I don't know, I think that we really struggle, like we're sort of you know, we're right we're okay with a with a robot vacuuming like who likes to vacuum but like that someone 
would be our religious, you know, <laughs> you know, they're somehow spiritual. Like, <laughs> can robot be spiritual? And I, I think that's a really excellent question. You know, what what makes us human? What makes the robotic monk not human? And what, you know, and I, I love that you're sort of attacking that in all these different ways. Yeah, I mean, there's so many incredible questions and there's people doing great scholarship ab about this. And um, because one of the really interesting things that's emerged in more recent years are um, that there are all kinds of, uh, there's, for example, a robot Buddhist monk named Mindar that was created in Japan and, and some other robot monks. And it's, it's really um, fascinating to hear human monks talk about um, why this is effective, right? This idea that if we think that um, a spiritual leader is just a vessel for teaching, right? Um, then that vessel could just as much be, uh, you know, a, a robot, for example, or what are the ways that there would be a reach into places where humans can't get to, or um, some of the interesting ones. There was, um, in Germany, they took a an ATM machine and turned it into a um, robot priest of sorts who could who could um, print out prayers for you and speak prayers to you, but you could choose the language, right? So this idea of, of, of starting to consider, um, well, actually, aren't, aren't there also some limitations to having humans as spiritual leaders and all the things that go wrong with that? So as I dug into it, I, I started to realize it was, you know, these were more um, complex questions than, than I realized, like what what we were assuming about um, spiritual practice and the human body, right? It, that we're really maybe at odds with the belief systems being taught with some sense that it had to be a human. Um, so I, I don't know. I think um, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the with the thinkers who are really digging into these kind of questions. So, yeah. oh, oh, so I was going to ask you just sort of when you we, did you did you go after robots because of this monk or, or like how how do you construct a book of poetry? Like, do you are you just obsessed with something and you're writing a bunch of poems in it and then you're like, oh, this, I guess, could go together on this theme? Or do you say, now I'm going to write about robots and now I'm going to have all my poems yeah. be related? I that's such a great question because I think, you know, people sometimes use the term project books for poets, right? Like, because it's just a collection of poems or project book. And, and sometimes even in sort of a negative way, this, you know, that it's a little too focused. But I like to think of it, I love that you use the word obsession, right? Like, for me, it is like, what is it that I really want to dig into, you know? And so in this case, um, I'm married to a medievalist and uh, he left a book on the coffee table called Medieval Robots by um, Truitt, E.R. Truitt, who's an incredible scholar, and um, uh, it opened this door, and, and and that kept leading to other things. Like, a lot of my work comes out of conversations with people and interests, and so, you know, a friend introduced me to her neighbor, who's a roboticist working on the robot bees. Um, so, you know, so then I expanded from automata to robot, so it kept just sort of um, my reading and my conversations kept leading me into that. So, I think I would say... Um, sort of both, you know, that it's the obsession. I think um, you have to be willing to let it go if it feels like it's too much, you know, and that was my worry. Like initially I thought that this could be sort of almost a bestiary of like different robot creatures. Um, and then I thought, I wanted to bring the human into it, right? So that's where other kinds of poems, poems that were more directly about um, other things, you know, mothering and grief. Um, uh, I felt like I needed to push back at it just being, you know, this is a book solely about robots, you know, or this, or in the beginning, this is solely about automata. And um, I think sometimes that can work and sometimes it can feel like, you know, someone's just beating the topic down and there's, you know, like, oh God, there's 40 pages to go and there's there's more robots, you know, you, you don't want your reader to have that feeling. <laughs> Oh, there's so much more in these than, than that. Yeah. And um, I didn't know that in the 16th century, they were like doing this, making robots and, or these automated beings. But much longer than monk. that. And did they know this was a monk? Do 
I mean, lo- longer than that, I would say, I mean, if you go back, um, I you know, did, did some incredible reading about, um, we, we have automata in Greek mythology, right? We have um, automata that seem to have been made um, both in the East and in the West um, for, you know, just thousands of years. So this idea of, uh, of imitating life, right, is... Um, seems I, I don't want to say primal, but it it, it certainly is long lasting, um, and 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 we see it in recorded culture, um, and you know it, it makes sense, right? In some ways, like are we, it, you know, there's there's all kinds of questions that come with it about being godlike, right? Um, but also solving problems, right? That that a lot of is you know coming out of engineering, like what what does it mean to consider how a bird flies and replicate it. And the next thing you know, we fly inside of those, you know? So, I mean, I think it, it really is um, kind of uh, interesting to think of automata makers as creators and makers, right? That sometimes they're engineers and scientists, sometimes artists, and often a combination of those. We're so, um, in in our current world, like tend to be divided out in our disciplines, right? Based on like university systems or whereas, you know, um, I think if, if we look at a lot of like great artists and thinkers and scientists, there was some, there's often some overlap in that, whether through through writing or making visual art that was um, embodying the scientific exploration. Yeah. So when you work on your poetry, when you start a poem, do you know the form it'll take? Do you decide this is going to be a sonnet or this is going to be free verse? It's how do, I, how do you find your form for poetry? Yeah, that's a good question. I think not usually, I usually kind of emerges more organically, although once in a while, um, I mean, I do love the sonnet or the loose, kind of loose American sonnet, which is, you know, sonnet, sonnet-like in its structure. Um, but I have to be willing to let go of that. You know, maybe something starts in one form and and changes. And um, at one point when I was teaching a poetic forms class, um, when I was reading my writing my second book, this book's of Venus, and I thought, oh, okay, I make students write a sestina. I should make myself write one like I really don't want to and and I wrote one and it was terrible and I mined it for parts and it became another poem you know so I think um poems are often just change form some find their initial form early on um and some go through a lot of permutations I think I really write a lot by year right so that to me that is like it's that foundation of the line and how that sort of um brings me uh to formal structures like where am i breaking the line where am i breaking the stanza what do i hear that's an interesting point though i think sometimes you know writing in a form even if it's not successful might you know send you off in a creative direction or be something that stimulates you know and then you're like well that didn't really work as a poem but i love these things that emerged from me attempting to write in this form yeah, I think any any time too that we can have some kind of limitation, whatever that limitation is. I mean, the page is a limitation, right? Or a word count is a limitation, or whatever a topic is a limitation. Something that, um, but anything that sort of makes us work within confines. I think that's why people love writing prompts, right? It gives you something to push up against. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of what how a form can pull things out. I mean, think about that even working with with rhyme, right? This idea of instead of just coming to the first word that comes to mind, you've you've got to really start thinking about all the different possible words and sounds and um, multiple meanings, and it, it can sort of push you into using different language, for example. Did you want to read another poem from the book, or do you want to? Um, sure. You know, I thought... Um, Maybe maybe I'll read a poem from my first book since we were oh. talking about like how yeah. how writing begins and then also the music because I think this one is one that has a lot of music and also it's been my favorite poem to read during the pandemic because um, I wrote it a, a long time ago but it sort of you'll see why it kind of has new meaning now so um, this is from my first book Little Murders Everywhere and it's called For the Solitary Diner. 
I love you. I love nobody. I love the way the storm is coming down, sky against ground, and my electric-driven bones begin to ache and the harpist across the hall plays out our melancholy. I love nobody. I love you, whoever you are, walking up the stairs, past my floor, on the street, down below where umbrellas fill and collapse, collapse and fill. I love every rickety framework that fills with wind that holds for you. I love nobody, there's nobody to love, and yet I still love you, whoever you are, sitting on the subway beside me or setting off the bells that sing to me from a distance, wherever you are, my fate, my melody, my untapped figure, my nobody, my you. I love you, I love nobody, I love you every time I see you leaving the theater alone or spooning your soup with solitude in the cafe. I see you in every part of the city I trespass through. How could I not, you, the ones I could love, you, the yous, the millions of yous, the nobodies. Oh my goodness, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And as you said, so good for our time. Yeah. So in that little, so that I did, I missed the murder part of that one. Um. <laughs> yeah, little murders everywhere. <laughs> so, dedicated to Meredith Cole, my murder writing. Yes, yes. Classmate. So I'm assuming that you mean murders in other ways. <laughs> no, no, no humans are murdered. No, in this, in this, um, to make this poem. Yeah. <laughs> For that one, was it about loss or how did you sort of group that? Yeah, yeah, that was, I mean, I guess I thought about that when you were talking about how you put a, a book of poems together and, you know, often for a first book, it's more of a collection, right? The different poems that we're writing. And this one was very much um, about, about loss and grief and also sort of human isolation and, um, connection right being alone in the city being alone in the world and and uh i think so in some ways this book has just sort of come back to me with new resonance in the pandemic and um i think you know it's interesting to think i don't know um you know with poets i think our our poems um they kind of live on in different ways simultaneously outside of books, especially now the with the internet, you know, if a poem, someone finds a poem, they don't know if you wrote it 20 years ago or today, right? Um, which, is, which is kind of interesting. I don't think we have that. Not that someone couldn't just pull a book off the shelf in the library, but, um, but I do think there's a, a sense of just um, continual presence of, of our poems if they're, if they're online. Do you feel that there's more people accessing your poetry than mighty would have accessed a poet you know 20 years ago because of the internet i think so i mean you know there i think about poets like you know um edna saint vincent millay supposedly could fill the hollywood bowl right you know there have always been celebrity poets and i think you know there are periods where there were just less poets and it was a bigger deal. I remember um, even I did an interview with the poet Jean Valentine and she was saying when her first book came out in the middle of the 20th century, like, oh, when a book came out, everybody knew it, right? So now both things are true. There's there's more books, there's more noise. <laughs> um, but I do think there is also, yeah, we have the potential to reach um, an audience. I, I edit a literary journal online that I started in 2004 and that was always kind of the argument getting people to publish in online journals from the beginning was trying to convince them like hey if you just have something a story or a poem in x review you tell someone about it they're they're not gonna all go subscribe to x review you know like as much as we'd love to think that right but um but when you're online just the incredible number of readers you can reach anywhere right anyone and any place can have access to it um so so there's there's some increase and then there's some decrease. You're also just, there's just so much else you're competing with, not even just other writers, but like everyone can be, you know, streaming, you know, TV shows instead of reading a poem or, you know, what are all the millions of things or texting or, you know, we have, we have so much other media coming at us at all times, so. True, very true. <laughs> and how is it for you teaching and writing? Are you able to, um, write consistently through a school 
semester or do you find, how does that work for you? How do you balance those? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think I've always been working while writing, you know, when I first started writing, um, you know, coming out of graduate school, I was adjuncting like five classes and, you know, teaching another night class somewhere else. And so I, I just got very used to kind of fitting, fitting it in when you can. And I do find writing incredibly, or teaching incredibly, um, inspiring and teaching, you know, when you're teaching, whether it's a workshop or a literature class, I'm always teaching texts, right? I'm not just talking about student work. So I'm constantly reading and thinking and talking about writing. And um, so that's exciting to me. That said, um, I do like to have a place of, of removal, like my favorite writing situation I've had besides writer's residencies, which are incredible. But um, when I was teaching at the University of Southern Mississippi, I had this tiny little library carol, windowless, just like a little white room with a desk. And um, one semester I wasn't teaching on Fridays and I would go and spend my entire Friday in this little like cell. And uh, it's funny, my husband was just telling me yesterday that the about the roots of the word carol, which they were, they sort of, archways sides of churches i might not be getting this quite right but they were little spaces with a desk for um for monks to copy right wow. <laughs> i feel like i'm in that tradition that's what i want this just like barren little room um where i could turn off um, because i think the big struggle is not teaching itself i love it but the struggle that we all have in this world which is email and how that changes whatever job you have this idea of people having constant access to you um so it's it's more about being able to disconnect from the world you know whether whoever that is whether that's our colleagues or our students or our loved ones or all the people who have access to us all the time and yeah as you both know how that works yeah and I there's find, something um, magical about the physical space that reflects that separation. So a small space and no windows because yeah, I, I, I can connect with that. I do have a, a lovely space in which I work that um, does have windows and all the rest, but um, occasionally I go and work in a closet on our second floor <laughs> where I oh my. moved an old desk because sometimes you just gotta get away from just the, all the stimulation, just even I visually. Love that. I that's, love that. That's so interesting though. I, um, I wish that I found writing more, I mean, teaching writing more inspiring for my own writing, but I find that when I am teaching writing, that I'm very drained and that I feel like I'm using a very similar muscle to writing mm -hmm. because it's like trying to help other people realize their vision somehow is, and so I end up sort of not writing while I'm teaching and I only teach the occasional, you know, workshop. Um, but I would love to have it be more inspiring. I always learn something though. I don't, I say yes again to writing, teaching writing because I always learn something when I do it. Yeah, I I, I agree it the, the learning something in it, but I also agree it's that using that same part of yourself, you know, on on um, on other work, and uh, I think some of it is is the balance, right? Like I mean, you know, with with academic teaching, if you're consolidated in the school year and then you have the months right where you're not looking at other people's writing and immersed you can take those lessons from the year you know and and apply them um later but yeah i think it's um it's it's, it's an interesting process right being being so invested in other people's sentences and rhythms right and how do you how do you walk you know uh comment on a a pile of of student work and then let go of those you know 20 different rhythms and and voices and and go back to your own right as um i think it's some people find that more challenging i think than others and i do think um you know as a novelist it's such a different project right i think I'm not saying this is like this for all poets, but for me, you know, I'm working in this usually like the world of a page. I find it a little easier to kind of jump into that. I don't have to reacclimate to an entire, you're doing world building, right? right. So, um, so I think that I can see how that has a lot of different challenges when you're, when you're trying to write a novel and you're um, entering all these other worlds 
Well, and yes. I don't, and I don't want to say, I don't want to be, I don't want to be judgy about it, but I also think, like, I've read amazing poems from someone who would be quite labeled an amateur. You know, maybe they only write this one great poem, but they can, they capture something and they're able to write a poem that's just amazing. But I would say 100% of people who start writing novels are really terrible at writing novels because there is... There's the world building, but then there's also the writing itself. You know, how are you at writing sentences? What's your vocabulary? Um, and then there's, you know, the character development. And, the, you know, you're keeping all these balls in the air. And I think it is incredibly challenging to do it amazing on the first time out. And anyone who does it, which someone says it's their first book, that's not their first time writing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true of, of, of poetry as well. Um, certainly not to say, I mean, I, let's just say I've, I've read some bad writing in my time. But, you know, I'm with you. And, you know, when I teach intro to creative writing, you know, I sometimes teach um, fiction and nonfiction, but often, you know, intro to creative writing where it's all three, I like to start with just teaching the sentence. <laughs> You know, because that's it, right? Like it starts like those this very building blocks. Like um, sometimes if someone's trying to start to write a novel when they haven't really thought about what it's like to write a sentence, you know, it's or they don't um, understand how a paragraph works. No, yeah, I often feel like when I'm teaching it, and you know, and it's really it's just you know, and I and I don't want to be like judgy about it. I just feel like this is something you haven't learned yet. That doesn't mean you can't learn it. No. You know, this is just like. Don't try to write an entire book without understanding how a sentence works and understanding how a paragraph works and understanding how a chapter works because that'll just be an exercise in frustration. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. And it seems with writing that it's um, both the kind of intellectual learning of the sorts that you, you were just mentioning, Meredith, but then it's also the practical learning of the doing that you both have touched on. That is that you have to just kind of keep doing it yourself yeah. and I don't I don't know if it's just a matter of you know finding your voice I think not I think it's it's bigger than that it's that it's some kind of muscle that you exercise some facility of judgment that you can make with your work as you are writing that only comes after writing quite a lot but also learning um the formal learning or learning just by having read so much morgan you talked about growing up in a house without any television and reading so much which is i mean the things we learn um without you know sitting down with a notebook and outlining um the five points of whatever matter we're trying to digest is um is really powerful yeah, I, yeah uh, I my think... parents also did not have a television and my mother's a medievalist, so. <laughs> you guys have a lot oh. in common. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we, I thought this is a whole other conversation. She's, I didn't she, realize she's, that. Uh, she, her books are about medieval maps. Well, so. we'll, ha we'll have to, you know, it's funny, my husband's like in the other room, he's been at the medieval conference this Oh, <laughs> and day. I don't think, yeah. And I my, wonder if she's there too. My mother's now 80, so she's not there. She's not there, We're but virtually I, she, there. Yeah. she might have gone before. She does still stuff. She still does stuff, but uh, yeah, she's, yeah. So her focus, her work with um, uh, Oxford University Press and I think Johns Hopkins was about different um different maps, you know, mostly that monks would create and that sort of thing. And that they're very, and that they're, yeah, she's very. Is that the period when they had those crazy, like, monsters in the corner? Yes, and so she, wow, her stuff, so, cool. so what she writes about is really fascinating because talking about maps were not to get any place. It wasn't like, here's this map, now you can find your way to Portugal or America or whatever. They were about sort of what's in the world. It was more about an evocative, that is a dangerous sea, so we put a sea monster there and they didn't they believe some of them too that there oh, were oh i'm sure i'm, I'm sure but but if you really wanted to get somewhere they kind of gave you a, a set of instructions okay. you know like walk for the day and when you get to this really big stump you know make a left and then then there's a nice you know ale house and you know i mean it was just sort of like <laughs> <laughs> medieval studies is a great place for writers to draw from there's just so much that's that's fascinating and uh and interesting you know i was thinking about what you were um saying about practice Kristen, and i, and I was thinking meredith about how your background is it a filmmaker and one of the things i often say to new undergraduate writers is i start with like okay 
you, those of you who have friends who are filmmakers or want to be filmmakers, what do they do all the time? They watch movies, you know, like they start, right? Or like, you know, what what do beginning um, music students do, right? They practice, right? And I think it's one of the challenges with writing is, is this, we think like, oh, we use language every day, we know how to use it, but really, um, you know, there's, there's so much uh, we have to reflect on, right? Like, what is it to be a film student, right? You, you know, there's things to learn, you know, there's technical things that you need to learn, right? Or if you're learning an instrument, you know, there's technical things you need to learn. But sometimes it's a little harder to convince um, new writing students that they have things to, to learn. Yeah. Well, and I think that does, I mean, I think that really does enrich your artwork, whatever you're doing, to look in, at what other people are accomplishing. And but I think there is also that danger when you're starting off that you probably have your taste is up here. So like, you know, you, you watch certain filmmakers and you go, this filmmaker is good, this one is bad. And then you try to make your first film and it is horrible. <laughs> and you can actually see that because you have fairly good taste or you watched enough films and you're like, oh my God. And so it's easy to get discouraged at that moment and say, oh, I guess I just can't do this because no one's showing you you know, Orson Welles' first film that's totally sucked. They're just, you know, you see the ones that really turned out well. And so I think that's true with writing, too. You you become very sophisticated in your taste, and then you try to do it, and you say, well, I just really suck at this. I can't believe it. I guess I should just give up. And the, You're just getting started. Yes, and so the faith yeah. to continue on, that's what separates us. <laughs> the, <laughs> the folly to continue on. That's the case yeah. maybe for some of us. Um, so Morgan, I think you're also doing some collaboration with musicians, speaking of other... Yeah, I do a lot of collaborating with composers and then by extension, you know, um, getting to work with musicians or no musicians who who are performing my work. And that's been just about the best creative thing that's happened in my life. Oh my it's so much fun. And, um, you know, it just kind of opens up to a whole different world of people and creative practice. And, you know, as, as you both know, writing is, you know, pretty solitary. There might be other people along the way, but when it comes down to the work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just been really a, a magical process to, to, tap into and as someone with no musical talent of my own it's her way to, that I get to be part of, of something that's um that I really love but can't create on my own how could and someone see one of these or, or hear one of these performances do you have um yeah you can go to my website where I have a lot of links and in fact actually um all, everything comes back to our high school. Um, so incredible <laughs> composer Mara Gibson, who we went to school with, um, has is a wonderful composer. She's uh, teaches at Louisiana State and is just very accomplished. And she just had last night a premiere of a piece and it included a song cycle that has two of my poems set in it. And um, uh, so she's really... Um, fantastic work that she does. And I thought, so that's been really exciting, kind of reconnecting with her. I met her through, um, uh, she was part of a performance in which another composer's setting of one of my poems was performed and, and we reconnected through that. So um, yeah, so I, I have links to all of these great composers, six different composers that I've worked with, I think at this point. And wow. um, you know, there's great, I think, especially coming out of the pandemic, there's so much like last night, normally, I wouldn't have been able, maybe to make it to this premiere, but it was, it was a broadcast premiere. So I was sitting in my living room, um, watching these uh, incredible um, musicians play. So wow, uh, it's, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and I did some pandemic collaborations as well, um, which were great uh, Did two different ones where everything happened virtually. We were never in the same room. Um, and, and those are, those are online as well, because they were, they were made for that. They're unlike most of the work, which is made for performance. These were really made um, to exist in a virtual space. Oh, wow. That's terrific. Well, we will definitely yeah. put your website um, on the podcast so that people can find those things and experience them because that's that I think it's just lovely to think of 
um, you're right, collaborating at times when things are um, so much a solo activity with writing. I, I used to be a filmmaker and that meant trying to get, you know, 60 people to all go in the same direction and follow the vision. And um, I found that incredibly stressful. And my husband was out, you know, carving marble and painting and saying like, what's wrong with you? Why, you know, why are you doing this if it's so frustrating? And now he's a community organizer and urban planner. <laughs> and he is on meetings all day and I'm just do, 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 do. And I think, I all right, well, we switched places. So I don't know if either one is most fabulous, but maybe we all could have a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Moderation. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan, you mentioned that these um, composers setting your poetry to music. Do you ever write poetry for the music or even are these? Are you writing with an eye to having it become a collaborative yeah. work or not? That's that's a great question. So sometimes the project are they take a poem and they, you know, compose a piece with the poem um as the as the text to be sung. And other times um it's a I, I've written things by request. So, um, for example, um, one of the pandemic projects that I did, uh, it's called Total Reflection of Light with a composer, Eric Malmquist, I've worked with a lot. And um, uh, a singer, Ariana Stahl, like we, he said, gives me a context, like I want something that's about the isolation that we're in. This was earlier in the pandemic, right? So I wrote the poem particularly for that. And um, right now the three of us are collaborating on a, a what we hope will be a um, episodic little opera for online. So wow. um, so that's fun as well. And I've also done, a, I did a crazy electroacoustic collaboration with another um, composer, Aaron Stepp, who lives in Charlottesville actually. Um, and we had a, had a residency together at the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. And he did something where he had me write a poem and he recorded my voice. And he does a lot of programming and he broke my voice down into little bites and all of the music in the piece is my voice. Wow. Um, but in that case, we were writing it together. He said, um, hey, your, your poems tend to be kind of tight and hermetic like is there something that you could do could be a little more flexible for the repetition um so i wrote a poem in the form called the guzzle um which is you know has a, a little more flexibility so i was able to use my kind of draw towards form and his request for flexibility and um so that was really fun and, and i bring up that project because the other music tends to be more like chamber music you know orchestra or string quartet or the ones last night one was voice and sax one was voice and soon um but this idea of also um kind of you know things that are uh electronic permutations um uh it was a whole new world to me and that uh that was kind of fun to just do something really really different and hands-on so this is kind of a long question you can see i get pretty a long answer i get pretty excited about that but um yeah it. it's fun it's fun to have them just take my work and do beautiful things with it <laughs> and it's really fun to get in there and and make things together and kind like of that. have it be a conversation and um sort of adjust things it's different than critical feedback right it's more uh yeah. just like generative and um and fun yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, I feel like we could just talk all night and hopefully someday we'll have a chance to talk all night. When you come back to BCCA again, when we're all doing things like that, you'll have to tell us. I've gone to visit friends in New York there and that's been really fun, you know, just driving over to, to uh, yeah. Amherst to see them because it's about an hour away, I guess. Um, but we'd love well, to... Well, you all have a high school reunion. I want to be an honorary yes. graduate. Yes, you, you could have been a graduate. Yes. Be careful what be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a great high school, but golly, yeah. you guys. Yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But thank you so much. It was just so wonderful to catch up with you and hear you read your poems. You know, find out a little bit more. We're always so interested in how other writers put things together like your collection thank you morgan thank you both for having me this has been wonderful to get to spend some time talking to you well it was really really fun to reconnect with morgan and you know to find out a little bit more about how she 
approaches her writing and, and her poetry collections. And it was, I found it really fascinating and her collaborations. I know those collaborations just sound so exciting. I, I loved that she read um, some poems for us and to be able to hear that, hear them to the rhythm, the, um, and the, and the play of sound, especially in that first poem she read. And of course the, the second one that she read with the repetition of you and love and oh my goodness, just so gorgeous. So an experience I had um, as a college student at Smith was one of the music teachers, and I was in chorus and one of the music, a choir, and one of the music teachers had um, done a large, a sort of a, a bunch of pieces and we sang them, and they were all Emily Dickinson poems. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I think some it's of, tricky making a poem into a And some a of them were more successful than others. I'll just <laughs> say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so interesting. And yeah, but trying oh, to take cool. the rhythm of the poetry and the rhythm of music and the voices, and it just, it was a really interesting project to perform, I think. It was yeah, the first time that they performed. Great way so, to memorize yeah, poem but, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, it's always great to catch up with you and find out Likewise. what you're working on, and well, I'll be what... eager to hear how the holdup continues. <laughs> the holdup continues. There will be no holding up the holdup. I think. Yeah, we're that's on a, right. We're on a good. We're on a good. Uh, yeah, good trajectory. But yeah. That's awesome. And interested to see what happens with um, the next Bible book. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying it, but there it is. There I'm it is. Excited. Yep. There it is. <laughs> Thanks, Meredith. All right. And I'll see you next time. Sounds good.